You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 53, What Should the Church Do About Abortion? Abortion is a hot topic right now in the United States, and it has been since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, and probably was a very serious issue to consider long before that. And as the years roll on, it seems that it becomes more and more contentious and divisive in this country, and I think the reason for that is that if you step back away from it and looked at it objectively, if that's even possible to do, it's just a really strange thing. It is so strange that we have legalized the practice of surgically murdering the unborn in their mother's womb, and this is the choice of the mother to do this. I mean, it's a really strange thing. Maybe I can't see this objectively, because all my life I've been against this practice, but as objectively as I can look at it, I step back and see this as a barbaric practice, and I pray that one day historians will look back on our age and the decades before it and ask, as we have asked about barbaric practices in the ancient world, how could those people justify and rationalize this practice of abortion. Now, it seems to be a trend that is slowing down if you just look at the numbers. The numbers of abortions in the United States peaked in 1990 with about 1.4 million abortions that year, and now the number is around 600,000. And of course, that's still far too many. One abortion is too many abortions, but it's cut in half or more than half and a lot of that has to do with birth control and um, awareness and other things going on and and hopefully along with that a change in attitude towards this barbaric practice still the number is not low enough and the question is what can the church do about it and I think a lot of Christians want to do something about it but we're not doing enough, and and what we're doing is not very effective. I think a lot of us think that just talking about it is going to solve the problem, and talking about it is important. Uh, People have to be aware of the issue and know the truth about it before anything can be done, so I'm not against talking about it. I think sometimes we politicize it too much, and we make it all about which political party you are in, and we get away from the true issue and into politics, and we have this idea that politics can solve all of our problems. Look, politics is not going to solve this problem. It's just not going to go away because of politics. Politics gives us foolish notions like the three-fifths compromise that decided that uh, three out of every five slaves would count as a person when it came to determining taxation and representation. I mean, that that's one of the things that politics gave us in the United States. We overcame that, thankfully, but not after a long time in a, in a great war that killed thousands of people. It's politics that have given us all these crazy ideas in the abortion debate. Ideas like, it's a woman's right to decide what to do with her body. Uh, whenever an abortion is committed... 
it involves a woman's body, but the the body that's being cast away like garbage is not the woman's body, but the body of her child. And that's common sense, but politics has given us this idea that abortion is about being pro-choice and defending a woman's right. And even crazier than that is the idea that I hear all the time that it's this is an issue about woman's health, women's health. And if you're against abortion and you're pro-life, then you're against women and you want women to be sick. And abortions are committed in women's clinics that are supposedly set up for health and wellness of women. And uh, uh, the abortion debate many times revolves around the idea that uh, women's lives are in danger because of pregnancy and abortion is saving lives. And uh, all of this is just absurd. It's nonsense to think that because it's very rarely the case that a doctor has to choose between the life of an unborn and the life of a woman. And I think most people would say, if you have to save a mother's life, and as a side effect of that, the the child's life is lost, that's one of those unfortunate circumstances that happens in medicine when you're trying to save lives. But abortion is usually about a selfish choice. It's a matter of convenience. It's a matter of, this isn't the right time for me. It's a it's a matter of those things, not about women's health. And I realize that if we make abortion illegal, some women will search for abortions outside of uh, safe clinics and places like that. And, and we hear about, you know, alleyway abortions and uh, illegal abortions that are dangerous to women's health. But that that doesn't mean that it's right to do it just because a woman may make that foolish choice. That's what politics does for us. And one of the reasons why abortion has become such a hot topic is we now have a 5-4 conservative majority, supposedly, on the Supreme Court. Now, who knows, really, if it's majority conservative or majority liberal or either of those things. Uh, Many people have mistakenly thought that they have summed up the Supreme Court, only to find out later they were way off base. But a lot of people are excited and think they may see the overturn of Roe versus Wade with this Supreme Court, once uh, Brett Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court. I'm not that optimistic about it, because asking the court to overturn a law that's been the precedent in this country since 1973 is asking them to do something very bold and brave, and that's not something the Supreme Court does all too often. Um, You know, uh, what I'm saying here is the Supreme Court is very powerful, but even though they're supposed to be, you know, blind justice, they often just follow the trend of culture. And the popular culture today is still swaying in favor of abortion. Despite the conservative numbers on the court, I don't expect to see the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Now, my state, the state of Alabama, has passed a law that pretty much makes all forms of abortion illegal, and they expect that to come to the Supreme Court, and we'll have a battle over that law 
or one of the laws in numerous other states that are similar to it. And so we will see, and it may take a long, long time, but we will eventually see whether or not the Supreme Court will overturn that decision. And I I suppose it is possible that abortion will become illegal, but in that remote possibility, that will not in and of itself end the practice of abortion, not any more so than prohibition ended the practice of drinking alcohol. In fact, I think that what you will see, and this is what I've seen in so many other cases, is an overturn of the law only to find the court becoming liberal later on and the reinstitution of the law later on, or Congress will make it legal or or something like that. But in politics, sin and power always seem to win. There's got to be another solution to this. And I think that's where the church comes in, and, and that's the question we're asking is, what should the church do about abortion? What can the church do? And there's a very important verse in James that tells us that we do have a role to play as Christians when it comes to the unwanted children in the world. It's James chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The verb there, visit, is not translated very well, although that's the, the way I see it translated in most translations. But it doesn't mean to just drop by and check on an orphan or drop by and see how a widow is doing. It, it means to do everything one can do to satisfy the needs of the orphans and the widows. And James says that's pure and undefiled religion, to visit or to see to the needs of the orphans and widows in this world, especially those who, who are in affliction. And if you're an orphan or you're a widow, you probably have your fair share of affliction. And so I think the church has a role to play when it comes to abortion that is a positive way of showing birth mothers the alternative. Uh, There is more that can be done. There is something, there's another choice We talk about choices, a woman's right to choose. You can choose to raise the child yourself, or you can choose to give the child up for adoption. And there will be Christian families there that will give your child, your biological child, the care and love and nurturing that he or she needs. And the church can do that, and many people are doing that. It's been humorous in this abortion debate to find... Several times these Twitter backfires. Somebody will come out, a prominent person that has a lot of followers will say something like, I challenge the pro-life people to tell me if you make abortion illegal, what are you going to do to help mothers who have become pregnant and can't raise the children on their own? And then you'll see just thousands of examples of what people are doing to help, whether it's, you know, providing counseling or contributing to women's shelters or adopting children or providing foster care or supporting others who are doing foster care or supporting birth mothers, etc., etc., etc. It's been 
interesting, entertaining, really, to to see how that has backfired on the pro-choice movement, the abortion movement on Twitter. It's an opportunity for the church, and we need to step in and do something instead of some other people. You know, same-sex couples are more than willing to adopt children, and they're doing so in droves, and we have all of these children who uh, have become orphans or haven't been wanted by their mothers or been given up for adoption, that instead of finding themselves in Christian homes, they're being raised by same-sex couples who are not raising them, of course, in the Lord and who are normalizing uh, another devious behavior, sinful behavior, that will come down in the next generation and become and grow and increase in its influence. And so the church has got to step up here. Uh, the answer to the problem of abortion includes adoption and foster care and visiting the widows and orphans in their affliction. Now, this is something I can speak about personally because my wife and I have adopted two children. And uh, I'll share our story with you just briefly. Um, We had trouble with infertility and learned that without any extreme measures, we couldn't have children biologically. And so my wife had a few surgeries and went through some treatments and it wasn't going anywhere. And we decided that instead of putting her body through more abuse, we would adopt. And uh, let me just say, if you're struggling with infertility, or if you know somebody who is, or if you're just somebody who never has struggled with infertility, this is a very difficult thing to go through. And there are numerous examples in the Bible. Uh, Some of the greatest servants of God have been men and women struggling with the problem of infertility. And it can be very painful. Remember Rachel, who told... Jacob, give me children or else I'll die. That's the anguish and grief. Uh, Recall Hannah praying so fervently that Eli thought that she was drunk. And that'll give you a glimpse, if you don't know it personally, of how painful infertility is. If you've never been through it, you can't know how difficult it is. And it's amazing, you know, the kinds of things that people will say to you if you're struggling with this problem. Um, you know, we heard some, some really ridiculous things from well-meaning people that, you know, were hard to deal with. And I have to give it to my wife. She, she dealt with all of that with a lot of grace, but it was, still, it was still a very difficult thing. I remember one older gentleman who would constantly tell me, you know, he, I'm trying to recall exactly how he said it. He said something like, don't wait till you have enough money to start having children. You'll never have enough money to start having children. That was his sage advice that he had for me, a young preacher at the time. And I, I think with ministers, there's added pressure to have a family and to have children. And there are a lot of good men out there who are ministers or who want to be ministers who aren't married, or maybe they don't have children. And unfortunately, brethren think that they're not as qualified 
as those with families, and that's just wrong. You know, we all have different roles that we can play, and there's a great role to be played by those who are single or childless or whatever. But this back to this older gentleman. He, he said it to me once. He said it to me twice. And the third time that he said it, I guess he thought that, you know, he knew something I didn't. I said, have you ever thought about that maybe we're trying to have children and we can't? And he just stopped like that had never occurred to him. No, I, I hadn't thought about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and and I, just, I just thought, you know, first of all, this is not a conversation I want to have with this man. It's not any of his business. What if I'm just choosing not to have children right now? That's my choice. But if it is, it's a really painful thing that I don't want to go through with him. But here I am having explained myself. To this person and this is the kind of thing people who struggle with infertility go through all the time and they have very few people who can sympathize with them and who know what they're going through so we we went through that and as we were going through that my wife decided she was the first one to suggest it that that we should look into adoption and we did and it was the best decision we ever made it was more wonderful and perfect than I could have ever imagined. It just it just was so natural. And I, I need to thank the people at Central Agape of Alabama who helped us go through that with both of our children. It was just a wonderful experience. And... I'm so glad that we did it, and we have these beautiful children, and I, I really feel God's hand in all of this. It's answered prayer for us. It's one of the things that I can clearly look back on and know that God has been active in my life. He's been watching over me. He has answered my prayers, and um, there is reason to continue to hope in Him. Uh, because I, I can't imagine having, you know, biological children that I could love more or that could be better for our home or more suitable for our home than the two children that we have. I just, I can't imagine that happening. I can't imagine it being any other two children than the two that I have. So enough about that. Um, it's been a great experience for my wife and me, and we're just enjoying every day of being adoptive parents. And we have found a lot of camaraderie with other adoptive parents, and uh, my children are fortunate to have a lot of adopted adults and children in their lives that, um, you know, are people that they can talk to about what it's like to be adopted. I mean, my wife and I are adoptive parents, but we're not adopted, and they can talk to us, and we can talk to them and share some things, but not in the same way that another person who's been adopted can. And so we're fortunate to have a lot of connections in our lives uh, that are familiar with adoption and have been through the process as well, and that's been a real blessing as well. But a lot of people are not doing it. You don't see a whole lot of adoption in the church. Not at the level you would expect after reading a passage like James chapter 1, verse 27. Why is that? I think it owes the problem 
is owed a lot to strange attitudes that exist in the minds of brothers and sisters in Christ regarding adoption. I'll go over some of those. Um, and these are just what I've, what I've heard people say in my experience. And they're just a sampling. They're, there's no end to the weird attitudes that people have. Um, one thing that people say is, uh, you know, that's not your own child. Or, you know, if I were to adopt, he wouldn't be my own child. He'd be somebody else's child. And, you know, people say this in subtle ways. They'll say, uh, do you have, you know, how many, you've adopted children, right? Yes, we have two adopted children. Well, do you have any of your own? Or... You know, I know a guy who adopted one child and then he had one of his own. Well, look, these children don't belong to anybody else but me and my wife. They are our own children. They're not just staying here for the weekend. Uh, they're not guests in our home. This is their home as much as it is our home. They are our own children. And I know it's accommodative language for a lot of people. They don't really mean what they say, but you ought to say things that you mean. Find words that express your true sentiments. And if you don't really mean that they're not our own children, then don't say that. Find something else to say. If you're looking for the language, here it is. I'll give it to you. There are biological children and there are adoptive children, but it's probably best not to make the distinction and make a big deal out of how the children came into the home and just call them your children. You know, it's helpful to talk about when you're talking about adoption, have these distinctions of biological versus adoption or adopted. But most of the time, if you're just talking about somebody's children, just call them their children. You know, that makes sense to me. Uh, another um, thing that I've heard, this I heard this one expressed in a Bible class that I was sitting in along with other adoptive parents. Uh, you can't love adopted children the same way that you love biological children, except they said your own children. You can't love adopted children the same way that you can love your own children. I don't even understand how that came up because I believe the teacher was teaching on Romans 8 and how we are adopted sons of God, which the whole point there is we're joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs alongside of Jesus Christ, but he missed the point of that passage by making that distinction. And I appreciate so much one older lady in the audience who raised her hand and said, I have two biological children and I have two adopted children. And I can tell you from experience that there is no difference in my love for them. I love them all the same way. And it goes back to the idea that if you haven't done this, you don't know. You just don't know. You should be able to observe that. But you, you don't know what it's like to love an adopted child if you've never adopted a child. So there's that. And then um, another thing that people who are thinking about adoption struggle with is if I adopt a child, that child is going to be so much different from me than a biological child would be. And I'm not sure that I'm equipped as a parent to raise this child that came from a different gene pool than a biological child would come from. 
And I, and I know that's a strange attitude because I've talked to a lot of people anticipating adoption, and I would say with men in particular, that's the number one thing that makes them reluctant to adopt. They're worried that they're not going to be equipped to be the parents of a child that came from a different gene pool. And in response to that, the first thing that I would say is look at any set of biological children and ask their parents if they're all the same. And they will say, absolutely not. They have the same DNA. They came from the same biological set of parents. But these children are as different from one another as day and night. So what does it matter if they come from your genes or somebody else's genes? They're going to be different and they're going to surprise you and throw you for a loop no matter where they come from. So that's a strange idea as well. Um, one that I heard a lot right after we adopted my daughter is how could a birth mother be so cruel as to give up her child? And that's, that's something we've really got to fix in our minds. That's wrong thinking. Because the real cruelty is a woman who gets pregnant and then makes the decision to abort her child. It's not a cruel thing to carry a child in your womb for nine months and go through all the agonies of childbirth that a woman who keeps her child goes through so that you can graciously gift that child to a set of adoptive parents who want to take care of that child. That's not cruel. That's one of the most loving things you can do in the world. What's selfish and cruel is to abort the child. And the reason I need to make this point is if we have that attitude towards birth mothers, we're not going to be reaching out to them and trying to find them and counsel them and support them we could actually be indirectly driving them to the decision to abort. So we've got to be more supportive of birth mothers and really see them in a true light, how loving they are to make this decision that very few women in that situation make. Um, I'll throw this one out there. This is just a strange one. It's not really a problem, but it is for adoptive parents sometimes. Uh, one thing that I heard so many times after our first child was adopted was, hey, now you can just relax and have one of your own. There, so that language of one of your own comes up again, but I, I think that comes from anecdotal evidence of lots, there are lots of families, and I know some personally, who adopted a child and then su were surprised to become pregnant afterwards. Uh, that didn't happen in our case, and we're perfectly fine with that. Um, that hasn't happened, I would say, in a majority of the cases. But because that is such a surprising thing and such a great story, it seems to happen more frequently than it actually happens. And somehow it has crept into the collective consciousness of this country that adoption helps you to relax in your relations with your spouse so that you can finally um, get pregnant. 
to put it delicately, uh, I don't know if I've ever been less relaxed than in the first few months of my daughter's life. Okay, so I think that is the biggest fallacy to that argument is I was pretty relaxed when I didn't have any children. I could go to bed when I wanted to go to bed. I could get up when I wanted to get up. I could do what I wanted to do. I could, um, you know, I only had to pick up after myself. I wasn't at the beck and call of a tiny person who could do nothing all the time. When the baby came, I ceased to relax. Okay, so that idea is just wrong. It's not supported by any scientific information or even any uh, common sense information. Um, there, there are some others on my list. I'm just going to address one more. One more is more of a um, philosophical idea. I don't even know. That, that gives it too much credit to call it a phil- philosophical idea. But there's an idea among some churches that it's wrong to support financially an orphan home or child's home or something like that. Um, they argue that the church's funds should be used only in ways they have found in particular passages, and they say they can't find any idea, any passages that support the financial support of homes in Scripture. Therefore, the church sins if it uses its finances to support children's homes. Uh, First of all, there is plenty of scriptural support for Christians supporting orphans, James one twenty seven being one example. And I know what the response to that is, which is that's an example of how an individual should support orphans, not a whole church. But a church is a group of individuals. There's also an idea among these people that make a distinction between individual and collective support that I heard happen in a church in our area just not too long ago where uh, they, this church wanted to have like a booth at a local city festival and pass out bottled water, but they felt it was unscriptural to purchase the bottled water with the church funds. So one of the elders got up and made an announcement. He said, you know, we want to provide bottled water at the festival. We can't use the church's money to do that. So if you would like to help us buy the bottled water, just hand me a few dollars after services, and I'll go out and purchase the water. Now, what's the difference between that and putting your money into the collection plate? You're putting it in the elder's hands. He's taking it to buy stuff on behalf of the church. You put it in the collection plate, and an elder takes it out of the collection plate and goes and buys it. There's no there's no difference. It's just ridiculous to make that kind of distinction between individual and collective action. Not only that, but in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following, we read that the early church had all things in common. There was no individual action. They did everything collectively, including their finances. So, you know, this, this idea that you, you have an individual expenditure of money and that Christians can do some of God's work that way and then other of God's work needs to be handled collectively. That's not a scriptural idea and I could spend a lot more time on that but I've probably confused a lot of you already. Let me get back to the the question about supporting orphan homes and this idea that it's wrong for churches to do so. I, I think that does a lot of harm. Now 
I wish that everybody would adopt a child or do foster care in their home. If every Christian did that, that would just be wonderful. But the simple truth is a lot of Christian homes can't do that, but they can support in other ways. And as we get older, we can't take care of children any longer, but we can support um, homes and adoption agencies and places that reach out to birth mothers and help them and provide services. And I think churches should do that. Uh, in another case, I remember a church that had a problem with supporting orphaned homes, and they couldn't help them do that. But I found it to be the case in a lot of these churches, maybe most of them, there are very few, if any, adopted children. They say that you need to do this action of James 127 on your own as an individual, but they don't do it. And in this one case I'm thinking about, a church that had that kind of problem and considered myself and my church to be a liberal congregation reached out to me because they had a need, a personal connection, and given the, them the need. And one of the elders called me and said, uh, we have a, a mother here who wants to give her child up for adoption, but nobody here wants to adopt the child. We were wondering if you and your wife would be interested in talking with her and um, possibly having her child placed in your home for adoption. And we said, absolutely. And it didn't work out uh, because the mother changed her mind. But it was just so inconsistent to me that this group that says it's wrong for churches to support orphan homes, individuals must take care of the orphans on their own, had nobody who would do that. And I think the main thing is don't miss the forest for the trees. The church is responsible to visit orphans in their affliction, and we should do that in a number of ways. Yes, these ways need to be scriptural, but it's not unscriptural to provide financial support for a children's home or for an adoption agency. Now, all of that said, what should churches do about abortion? I think we should encourage more foster care and adoption, and I think we should provide support for homes, uh, such as children's homes and adoption agencies. I think we should invite uh, representatives of these homes and adoption agencies into our churches to talk about what they are doing, what can be done. Uh, they can give you more information than I can about it. I think we should do everything we can to make counseling available for birth mothers and show them there is an alternative to abortion and that there are caring homes that can raise children in in Christ and raise them up to be Christian men and women. I think we need to get the information out there, some information in this podcast to correct those strange attitudes that are out there and, and provide support and encouragement. Encourage young people who want to become parents to adopt. Uh, those that aren't struggling with in uh, aren't struggling with fertility and those that are. There's a lot of Young parents who are putting their bodies through horrible medical procedures to try to have a child biologically and are doing so for over a decade with no results who could go the adoption route and have a wonderful family in a very natural way if they'd only consider it. But sometimes they just don't think about it. Sometimes they think it's too uh, expensive that they'd never be able to afford it. Sometimes... They just think that um, they just they 
they just have those strange attitudes that need to be changed. Some support and encouragement would change that. Um, it's not financially impossible to adopt a child for anybody. Uh, the federal government gives you tax credits that almost pay 100% of the expenses. A lot of people don't know that, but there are ways to do that in adoptions handled through agencies. And if you adopt through child services in your state, many times the cost is very inexpensive. Foster care actually, in most cases, pays you. And I think that's another thing that makes people hesitant to adopt. They think it's financially impossible, but it's really not. There are so many things that can help. And if you have any questions about that or anything else, I would be happy to answer your questions. There is there's so much that the church can do about abortion besides just talking about it and railing against it and getting involved in politics and going to the ballot box and having these political discussions. We can actually get involved in society, change hearts and minds, and take action to visit the orphans in their affliction. That's pure and undefiled religion, and it's something we need to do more of. And so that's my story and some things that go along with it. Thank you for listening. There will be more next time on Wide Margins.